Greetings and Shabbat Shalom. Greetings to you out there, the 12 tribes scattered abroad. I'm glad that you could tune in this Sabbath. We are looking at part two of liars, lunatics, and demons. But before we commence on this second part of the teaching, I just want to thank all of you online, all of you out there that support this ministry. It has been an amazing, amazing season. As we get ready to come into the seventh month, your donations have kept us going, and I'm so thankful. Thank you again very much. Now, please, you have just two or three weeks left to register to the Feast of Tabernacles. And you can go to TorahToTheTribes.com and go to Connect, and you connect with us and register for the Feast of Tabernacles here in Southern Oregon coming up in a couple of weeks. So thank you very much, everybody that has got organized. We still have a few registration spots open. I believe all the RV sites have gone but we may be able to put overflow in a local park right near the campsite. So get in touch with us, and um, we hope that you'll register. Let's see. Liars, Lunatics, and Demons, Part 2. Now, this was not supposed to be a two-part or three-part series. It really was birthed out of me coming back from holiday and opening up the P.O. box and responding to a few letters. But since I opened up that can of worms, I guess it was a hornet's nest that I have stirred. Because a lot of people have commented online, I know you have out there, and in the, on the comment section, and in the chat. It's actually been quite um, interesting. Some great responses, and some not so great. But, you know, that's okay. We just keep on trekking here at Torah to the Tribes. So today, I'm going to be looking at the Apocrypha. We left off last week. And again, I want to state before I dive in that I don't believe that the 14-book removal is the conspiracy. I don't believe it is the conspiracy. I think that that's the ploy of the synagogue of Satan, the Jesuits and the Zionists. I think that's what they want you to believe. Personally, I believe the conspiracy is that the 14 books were placed within the scripture unchallenged for all that time. And quite honestly, you've got a bunch of people out there now, I believe, that are trying to reinsert that back into the Bible as a Trojan horse against the faith. So that's why I wanted to spend this time, liars, lunatics, and demons. So we're going to jump in today. Let's talk about the Apocrypha for a little bit. As you can see, I've got my trusty 66 here. I believe the 66 are the inspired, Yah-breathed words. Of course, we know that the Bible transforms our lives. And just before we open today, we were talking about the difference between the natural man and the supernatural man. There is no problem with reading history. There's no problem with reading the Apocrypha. There's no problem with reading the Dead Sea Scrolls. But when you read those things, understand, you're the natural man. You're the natural man. You want to be the supernatural man, the supernatural woman, then you go in the 66 books of Scripture. That's all I'm saying. I want to live a supernatural life, and the living Word of Yahuwah is what transforms us and awakens the soul to the Spirit. But if you want to live in the base levels of your regions, then sure, there is a time for that. But that's the natural man. So really, this is all just juxtaposing the natural versus the supernatural. And it's time for us to transform our lives. I don't want to be a minister of the letter. I want to be a minister of the Ruach. And to do that, I'm saying it's in the 66. 
That's all I'm saying. So without further ado, let's talk about the Apocrypha. It's got huge historical mistakes. It has got geographical mistakes. It's got chronological and historical mistakes. In fact, Tobit, which is, of course, in the Apocrypha, he, he kind of loses himself in history. He misplaces himself in history because he died 43 years before he records the events in which he found himself. Tobit, what's, what's going on with you? I've lost myself, misplaced myself within history because I died 43 years before I apparently recorded the What? You see, I like to look at things critically. And when I look at the 66 critically, I am inspired by the revelatory change in my life. But when I look at history that is oftentimes manufactured today, especially so, and those texts that are not inspired, I find gaping holes. Tobit misplaces himself in history because he died 43 years before he records the events in which he found himself. Judith has the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar ruling in Nineveh. The book of Judith in the Apocrypha has the Babylonian king ruling in Nineveh over Assyria. Hmm. That's kind of weird. The book of Maccabees totally fluffs, totally fluffs the death of Antiochus Epiphanes. In one place, the book of Ma Maccabees says that he, he died after, after being cut to death. But then in another place, it says he died from sickness. Well, which is it? You see, these are the things that bother me. But then... It's not inspired, as I understand, life-changing inspiration. There are moral mistakes, too, in the Apocrypha. Moral mistakes abound. The Apocrypha applauds suicide, of course, which the Bible says is no. There are Torah mistakes within the Apocrypha, too. There are, of course, calendar mistakes. And there's no better time for you online to go to TorahToTheTribes.com and go to the Connect page, because on Friday night, we have the best calendar club where you can get together with people and learn about the biblical calendar based upon the scripture, the 66. In fact, it connects all the way back to the times of Moshe and the Malkizedic origination. So now time when people can really press in for truth and see the errors that often come over time, a Trojan horse that is brought into the faith. Magic, 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 magic. In the of Tobit within the Apocrypha, you've got livers that are just cooked up on live poles to drive away the devil. And you can even take those livers and kipper juice and smear it on somebody. And you know what? That will get rid of those wicked, wicked devils and bring healing into your life. Magic, smearing kipper juice for healing. This is all in the Apocrypha. And I find that problematic and contradicts the 66. Murder, of course, is commended in Judith chapter 9, verse 2. Yet the Torah is very clear on what happens when you murder somebody. Look. It's really that simple. I know that I've caused great, great contention with those that would try to hold on to those traditions of men. But Yahweh said that his word, not my word, not your word, not the word of cave dwellers down in Qumran, but Yahweh's word would be what? 
forever settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. And he has given a stern warning to any who would presume to add or subtract from the words of Scripture. And in all of my history as a believer, and this is where this comes from, and so many of you out there are misunderstanding me because maybe you see me as a talking head, but I'm a real live person with a real family, somebody that was dead and now is alive because of he who sits at the right hand of the Father. My testimony is true because he rose from the dead and he sits at the right hand of Yahuwah. And because of that, I have been delivered from torrents and turmoil, death and destruction, and I have clung throughout my whole life, my whole life, to the inspired 66. That's my testimony. Now, you don't have to believe that, but it's true. And therefore, I know that the power of transformation is in the 66, because the 66 is Yah breathed. I love history. I've read the Apocrypha. I've read the Dead Sea Scrolls. But it is not going to turn the supernatural man out there, powerhouse in here, because it deals with the natural carnal realm of where so many people operate from. We're dealing with a war here, and our war isn't against the natural man. So I don't fight with the natural man. This is a supernatural, life-changing message because the 66, through the power of Yahweh's comforter, has changed my life and changed your life if you really dig deep. You know it. Let's continue on. Because to me, these so-called, some people say the lost books of the Bible, the so-called lost books, they've got big problems. I mean, big, big problems. They lacked apostolic or prophetic authorship to begin with. They didn't claim to be the word of Yahweh either. They contain unbiblical concepts such as prayer for the dead, and you wonder why the Catholicos got into all the trouble that they did. Because in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verse it's okay to pray for the dead. No, the Bible says that's necromancy. That's what the 66 say. I'm going with the 66. I'm not going to go and pray for the dead, even though the Catholic priests will go to 2 Maccabees 12:45, And they have some serious the Apocrypha, some serious historical inaccuracies. The inaccuracies abound in Enoch and Jubilees, which didn't even align with each other. They couldn't even agree with one another, let alone agree with the 66. So when people speak about the historical, the apocryphal, or the scrolls from the desert, they have to isolate them from everything else. Because in isolation, you can cause manipulation. But when you take them out of isolation and bring them into comparison, then you find what? Demons, liars, and a bunch of lunatics. That's why... I'm really enjoying this teaching. I hope you guys are. From the response out there, the response out there, there's not as many haters as there once were because I think they've just left the building. <laughs> Let's continue on because really there's a lot of unbiblical, unsound, and wicked things in the Apocrypha that totally, totally contradict the 66. You see, the Apocrypha, these books were never, never authoritative. They were never inspired or authentically written by either Jewish prophets or apostles. I am very aware that the 1611 compilation of the Bible had 80 books in it. 
Now, the Ethiopian Orthodox Bible, 80 books weren't enough for them. They added one more. There were 81 books in the Ethiopian Orthodox Bible because their camels kicked up so much sand in their eyes that they ended up accepting the book of Enoch as, ca as canon. Well, that's what happens when you ride around in the desert on a bunch of camels for a long time. You get so much sand in your eyes, you'll accept anything as canon. So they accepted the book of Enoch. Major problem there. Now, you get into the other Orthodox Bibles, they have 74 books. The Catholic Bible, 73 books. The Protestant Bible, 66 protesting against something. Yes, they didn't have the full revelation, but revelation is progressive. And a great thing happened when we pulled away from the Pope, the Jesuits, and the papal system. So the Protestant Bible has 66 books. The Jewish Bible in the time of Yahusha, we established last week, had 22 books that correlates to our 39 that we have today. I went through that counting and numbering system last week. So both Protestant and Catholic Bibles have the same number of books in the New Testament. That we can agree to, 27 in the New Testament, or better, the Brit, Hadashah, meaning it's a new covenant, it's brand new, blood ratified, as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, by the work of Yahusha. And that's what I'm sticking with, because you know what? It's true, it's inspired, it is written. So it's a lot of fun digging into this stuff, but again, there's a lot of trouble that has come my way because I choose to do such things. But anyway, be that as it may, it's fun stuff to question and to look. So the Catholic Bible has seven extra books in the Old Testament. And that is what, of course, has caused a little contention. Because around 2,200 years ago, the Hellenistic Jews, they put together the Hellenistic translation of the Tanakh. It was called what? The Septuagint. Now, I love the Greek translation of the Bible, the Septuagint, the LXX. I do. I think it's a lot better than the Masoretic text but that's where the extra books were included. And this is where things started to go array with the Catholics because they took those extra books that were in the LXX and incorporated it into their Bible because in the Greek-speaking or the Hellenistic world, there were 46 books, the Septuagint, that were generally accepted until about a hundred of the common era. What happened in about a hundred of the common era? They wanted to kick out all of the non-Hebrew writings, everything that had been influenced by the Greeks, which of course later you migrate, of course, westward, and you start to get Greco-Romanism, and then you start to get a whole confusion mess. So we're so many thousands of years down the road, and you start to unpack this, a lot of people, sacred cows, are being picked apart. And it does cause a little contention, because people are coming from all different backgrounds. And I understand that. That's not the purpose of this teaching. The purpose of this teaching is for us to be what? The restored man, the one new man that is what? A powerhouse by the Spirit by the Spirit. So, all that to say this, our 39 count in the Old Testament that we have in the 66 equals the 22 count of the Jews in the time of Yahushua, which I spoke about in depth in part one of this teaching. So today, what we're seeing is a difference and discrepancy on what is canon and what is not. I'm going to talk about canon. But back to the Catholic book, you have 46 in the Old Testament, which is different, right? Seven more. And 27 in the New Testament for a total of 73 verses. The good old 66. And that 
that's what is a confusion to some. And I want to help with that. So these 73 books were accepted as the Bible for well over a thousand years. Well over a thousand years by the Jesuit controlled horde all across Europe. And then you have Martin Luther began to question the manuscripts and you have the beginning of this protesting movement that could have gone all the way, but it didn't. But that doesn't mean that you discount Protestant and what they were doing is they then began to question. Why were they questioning? Because some of the doctrines that were practiced were coming right out of the Apocrypha. Prayer for the dead, paying for alms so that the dead sinner could be moved from purgatory into heaven. All of this crazy stuff was apocryphal based. Look at a few of these things today and those are the things that troubled me. So again, why were these books, the 73 that was in the Catholic canon, removed? because they were not Hebrew manuscripts that were known at that time. Luther changed the Bible from 46 to 39 books. That's why there's seven less books here today. But was that the conspiracy? I don't believe, like I said, that was the conspiracy. I believe the conspiracy is that the Jesuits and the papal hordes had had the 14 books in there unchallenged for all that time. All that time, and they're trying to do that Trojan horse infiltration again today, and some more, and some more books on top of the 14. So, the Council of Florence, 1442, definitively established the official list of 46 books of the Old Testament and the 27 of the New Testament, which of course became the Catholic canon. Now, the Apocrypha was part of the King James Version for 274 years. So you can go, oh yeah, the King Jimmy. Well, which King Jimmy? The original King Jimmy, you had the Apocrypha, it was part it for 274 years until it was removed in, I think, 18, in the 1880s, 1884, 85, something like that. But that's a long time. Now, like I said, again, keep going back to this. My daily carry is a 66. It's not a 24-booker. It's not an 80-booker. It's certainly not an 81-booker. It's not a 74-booker. It's not a 73-booker. My daily carry is a 66, and I believe that is inspired for good reason. You may agree. You may disagree. But just don't hate on me. And everybody online there, just, you know, keep it cool. Give us some thumbs up right now and subscribe to the channel. And if you don't like this teaching then go and listen to something else. <laughs> you see, the thing I have learned as we have got bigger and bigger online is that some of you out there, you just love to hate watch. You watch the whole teaching all the way to the end and then you're like, thumbs down, thumbs down, really crazy comments and I'm like, it's, it's a comedy show, but, you know, that's just the way that the world that we live in today, isn't it? It's just, it's, it's pretty wild. Anyway, I've mentioned the canon way too many times today, and I haven't even defined it. I wouldn't mind using a canon on some people, but the canon that I want to talk about it actually is a Greek word. It comes from the Greek, canon. <laughs> Canon comes from the Greek, canon. And guess what it means? A bazooka. No, it doesn't. It means a measuring device, a measuring device, a staff or ruler, a standard for measuring. There's nothing offensive about that word when we understand it in its origin, right? Because when you mention canon, that's like a trigger word. 
You know, people start to trump out on you when you mention canon. Oh my goodness, you believe in the canon? That's just man-made. No, I believe in a standard way that we can measure what is inspired and yah-breathed and what is not. And I think that that is okay. Give us some thumbs up on that. Give me a break. Canon, a measuring device, a staff or ruler, a standard that is set for measuring. Today, canon means standard, and the standard is it's inspired by Yahweh. It's God-breathed. Canical means it's inspired and belongs in the Bible. Non-canical means it's uninspired. Historical may be, but it doesn't belong in the Bible. Well, now you've brought up the word Bible. Well, what's the Bible? There's another trigger word. Well, let's go back and examine what the Bible is. Bible, it der derives from the word Biblos. Biblos. And it's actually the Greek name of a Phoenician city, Gebal. The Greeks called the city Biblos because of its importance. What did it do? It actually, its importance because in the trade of Bablos which was the Egyptian papyrus. It was a port where all of the Babylos Egyptian papyrus would come in. And therefore, that's what it means. Books were called Biblia by the Greeks. It's not like some bad word, because sometimes people get triggered by using the word Bible. Its origin is from this area and Biblia books were called, well, here's a Biblia, the books the Greeks would call. And from a first and second century point of view, as men were amassing and amassing a great collection of Greek writings, and you get all of these Greek writings and you put them together, you decide that they meet the standard of inspiration, and then you put them together, you have a what? A Bible. So it actually its etymology is very true when you take it back to its historical. It's not some bad word, but here we are thousands of years later and people get triggered by such things as 66 books in the Bible. So the Bible today means the authoritative inspired collection of manuscripts that were collected together and measured according to a set standard. So I believe, like to beat a dead horse, it's limited to the 66. And you can hate me if you want, but I'm sticking to it. I believe it because I have experienced a transformative change in my life by the 66. And I've read the 81 plus the Desert Scrolls with no transformative change. Yes, did it puff up my natural man? Did it puff up my intellect? Did it puff up my ego? Of course, it's the natural man. But it didn't change me supernaturally. The 66 does because it's Yah-breathed. But if you haven't experienced a Yah-breathed transformation in your life, then you're going to be what? Stuck with the natural man. So that's all this is about trying to get us to move into our higher calling of transformative change, especially when you have young children. Do you want to raise your children as being a minister of the letter or a minister of the Ruach? My children are changed by ministry of the Ruach in our home. So that's where the power's at. So I believe the canon is determined by Yahuwah, not by man. And it's determined by Yahuwah, Yahuwah's canon or measuring device, staff or ruler. Second Timothy 3.16 says this, Every scripture inspired of Yahuwah is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, which is in righteousness. Can Aaron, can you go out there and talk to our local brewer 
um, that seems to be deciding that he's going to use the easy lift when I'm teaching. You see, that's what happens when somebody isn't in the inspired word. They're down the brewery, and he's named his brewery just so if you want to look online and, and you know, hammer him in the comment section. What's it called? divine distillers it's not divine if he's not listening to the teaching today but he's in there with his mash smash and mash malt liquor spirits thank you exactly bloody oh he's gone see yes nice one beep 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 like oh my goodness Gonna have a refreshing pause while we deal with the spirits. Yeah, he's good. There's nothing new under the sun. They had to deal with this back at the time of the funky monks. They were out there with their mash. That's where Friar Tuck got in trouble, remember? Yeah, exactly. He was doing that kind of stuff when he should have been listening to Robin Hood. All right, let's get back on track. <laughs> oh, good night. What was I talking about? The canon, the Bible, the 66, the 80, the 81, the desert rats, all kinds of things, I'm sure. Talking about desert rats, let me digress to the desert for a little bit because I love to do that. So it's very important as we go forward with what is scripture, what is history, what is the teaching, you know, I find it a little bit of a coincidence that there were a bunch of desert rats digging around in Israel, just coincidentally discovered all these scrolls right at the time of the biggest counterfeit Zionist conspiracy to hit this world in thousands of years. We have the formation of the Zionist state of Israel and the coincidental coinciding double double phrase therefore of finding the Dead Sea Scrolls because we're talking about the Apocrypha but I digress to the desert just for a moment because digging up a bunch of manuscripts in Qumran which coincides with the Zionist conspiracy doesn't make it any more a established true measurement, does it? The Dead Sea Scrolls, just like the Apocrypha, are no more ruled and measured and revelatory for our faith any more than the thousands of Hellenistic texts that preceded them. There were thousands of Hellenistic texts around the time of Yahusha that still aren't measured and ruled as inspired. I think it's actually more plausible, way more plausible today than any other speculative theory that's being floated about that the Qumran community that were down there were a cultic, Gnostic, Masonic group of priests associated with the Jewish priest Sceva and his seven sons any more than they were to do with the Malkit Zedek. This speculative reasoning out there is mumbo-jumbo. It is just as reasonable for me to speculate that the priests down there were associated with Sceva, the Jewish priest, and his seven sons because they have a common, common thread, which is what? They all invoke the name of Yahusha to do what? To prop up their deceptive lies and infiltrate you with a Trojan horse. Liars lunatics and demons because as the true authentic Malkitzetic message has gone forth and transformed people's lives what do you expect Satan to do raise up another priesthood of speculative theory the desert rats 
which could just as easily have been associated with Sceva, the Jewish priest, as it could anything else. But people float these theories while I'm just floating mine. It's just as valid because you won't find any of it in the Bible. Oh, actually, you will find the seven sons of Sceva in the 66. So it's actually more ground of basis than the other mumbo-jumbo out there. And this is the thing. And then people will actually shoot me a link to something and say, well, you know, you really need to look at this to validate this. And I'll go, oh, okay, I'll give it a minute. And it's like a CNN reporter with a secular girl reporting about this, that, Enoch, that, Jupiter. I'm like... Well, hang on a minute. I wouldn't listen to any other secular person. I want to read what's in the text. And I'm just saying it's too easy to go to YouTube and fall for things. It's just too easy. I mean, I'm not going to get my news from CNN, even if it's talking about the Apocrypha. Just, just saying. Anyway, let's get back on track because it is very important that we understand these things. So the Apocrypha was actually, what it means is hidden. It's hidden. Well, the books that were added at the end of the Old Testament is the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha was written, and like I say, I've got the Apocrypha at home, and I would highly recommend if you want to read the Apocrypha, I like the Brenton Septuagint. It's great. I think it's a great great thing to have in your library so I'm not against these things but I just want to frame what's inspired because the Apocrypha was written in those silent 400 years you know when Israel's wasn't hearing from Yahweh that's when the Apocrypha was written in the dark period when Israel had no prophets between Malachi and the coming of Yahushua 444, um, 445 before the common era to about 45 of the common era is when this was all compiled. And after the time that the Tanakh, the 22 books, had already been completed. So I would ask, well, why? They weren't hearing from Yahuwah. There was no formal prophets in Israel. There were a bunch of formal prophets. It was extremely Hellenistic. There was a rebellion from the priesthood. There was the whole Hasmonean dynasty. And this is where it was birthed. That should be enough for you to take pause. That is all I'm saying. Realize the Apocrypha does support a lot of pagan practices that we're all trying to get rid of in our lives. Thank goodness I don't go out in December anymore and cut down trees and hang big bulls of rar on. But there was a time when I did such things. You know, there was such a time when I did these things. But thank goodness I don't do it anymore. Just like we don't pray for the dead. Just like we don't make sacrifices for the dead. But all of these things are affirmed in the Apocrypha. Prayers to be made, money to, money to be paid, to move a dead person from suffering into a place of reward. All of this came in that 400 years, the dark period. Atoning for one's sins by the giving of alms. Paying money to have sins forgiven. This is not inspired, yah-breathed, even if you love the Brenton Septuagint, which I happen to do. I still make a clear distinction of where the revelation is. This, of course, is in strict contradiction to the Bible, the 66, these things that appear in the Apocrypha. Hebrews 9.27 And inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this cometh the judgment. You can't change a person's station, their eternal destiny, once they're dead, by praying for them, by paying alms, by making sacrifices, there is no post-mortem resurrection 
for the wicked into glory. You just can't move them. It's not going to happen. But there are many that believe in such a thing. Where did the, the Catholics get such crazy ideas to pray for the dead? Because they didn't just pull it out of a hat. They pulled it out of the Apocrypha. 2 Maccabees 12.45 Wherefore he made the propitiation for them that had died that they might be released from their sin. If that doesn't call into question the Apocrypha, I don't know. That is in strict contradiction to the words of Yahushua. This is actually a blasphemous statement if you are a believer in the sin sacrifice of Yahushua. I'm sorry. There is no way that you can change your eternal destiny except through the blood of Yahushua. Wherefore, he made the propitiation for them that had died that they might be released from their sin. This, of course, is 2 Maccabees 12.45, and there you have it. You've got now a whole Catholic canon that is based upon that scripture, and there's many more to support such crazy ideas. The Catholic doctrine, for instance, of so much pray for so much pay, paying money to have sins forgiven, comes from Tobit, chapter 12, verse 9. Arms doth deliver from death, and it shall purge always all sin. Pay to pray. The 66 contradict such things. Luther came to that understanding. He didn't have full revelation, but he realized that the conspiracy was that the 14 had been stuck in amongst the 66 that the additional Catholic additions of the Apocrypha needed to be removed because this was where they were getting their doctrines. Full revelation, no. But we move with progressive revelation. And now, in these days, when Yahweh is doing amazing things through his ministry of reconciliation and the Malkitzedic priesthood, you're getting the dark Trojan horse to try and slip back in and people reading all kinds of stuff and thinking, oh, okay, I'm going to get my doctrines from this. Okay, you know, the seven feasts of Yahuwah aren't enough for me. Let's go and do some apocryphal things as well. Let's go and follow the desert rats and add things. Let's just stick with the seven. The seventh day Shabbat, the seven feasts of Yahuwah, and this is good. This is inspired. So, do I have a bias? Of course I have a bias. I'm English. I'm English. I totally have a bias. It is, of course, the Westminster Confession. Now, I'm not a fan of all things that live in Westminster because my sister lives in Westminster and I am not her biggest fan and she certainly is not my biggest fan. But we won't go down that road, Brexit and all that. Anyway, yes, I do have a slight bias. The 39 Articles of Religion, 1563, and of course the Westminster Confession of 1647 is my bias. Don't look spooked, because I think it's a very sensible bias, and I'll read it to you. Because in the 39 Articles of Religion, of course, the Church of England and the Westminster Confession, the English believers back there, they weren't all bananas. They had some good, strong orthodoxy. They weren't lacking biblical scruples. They were the forerunners to the faith. And that's my bias. That's my history. But the 39 articles of religion in 1563 of the Church of England asserted this. I'm in total agreement. I think this is just great, super sensible, and it's how I live my life. These deutrocanical books may be read for example of life, and instruction of manners, although they should not be used to establish any doctrine. Article 6, 
That's all I'm saying. I'm totally into that, and I believe that. Some decent manners. There's some good reading. But we shall not establish doctrine from the Apocrypha and the Desert Rats. This is all I'm saying. The Westminster Confession of 1647 is even better. It decreed these books, quote, not being of divine inspiration are no part of the canon of Scripture and therefore are of no authority to the Church of Elohim, nor to be in any otherwise approved or made use of other human writings. They're human writings. That's the clarity that all I'm trying to communicate. The difference between human writings, the natural man, and Yah-breathed writings, the supernatural man. But ye who are stuck in the carnality, you make yourself enmity because you cannot even subject yourself to the moral code of the divine inspired word. The next thing you're floating, the Apocrypha, Tobit, Maccabees, and all of this crazy stuff. And again, it's time to take pause so that when the Trojan horse tries to slip into your bookshelf, you can be fully aware of it. So there's my bias because I do have one. We all have a slight bias. I grew up in England. There are some orthodoxies that I still hold as I think are sensible. I think it gives me pause and it gives me discernment. I don't think that's a bad thing. There used to be a time when I would go, anything that was Christian, I didn't want to have to do with it, when I was in the messianic movement. But then I'm like, you know what? It's time to grow up. Those strong foundational roots that are in the inspired word, we can use that to help guide us as we now get more revelation. But I'm not going to be bouncing to and fro, left and right, falling for all these diverse doctrines of men, liars, lunatics, and it's sometimes, oftentimes, demonic. Now, the British and Foreign Bible Society decided in 1827 to remove these books in finality from any further publications, and they said, we're going to label them as apocryphal. I'm in full agreement with that. But I'm messing with you a little bit too, because, you know, I'm not, I'm not opposed to a little bit of King Jimmy with the Apocrypha. But I am full clarity understand what's Yah-breathed and what is a work of man. So I'm just looking around in this day and age. I'm seeing all of this and all of this social media and YouTube. And I'm glad you guys are tuning in on YouTube. But we have to steward everything and run everything through the Word. So as I look around with all of the diversity, with everything going on, I've been made aware that there's liars, that there's lunatics, that there's demons who are hijacking Scripture, hijacking the truth of the Malkitzedic priesthood that I've dedicated my life, and you out there dedicated your life to researching and finding what is this Malkitzedic anointing that's going forth across the nations? But there are people out there lying, a little bit loony, and of course, oftentimes influenced by demonic spirits that are trying to hijack history, the Malkitzedic priesthood, what is scripture and what is not. And they are trying to ride a Trojan horse right into your living room. So I don't think it's too bad for me in this time to say, let's pause, let's look out for the seven sons of Sceva because they're doing the same thing that they've always done, trying to invoke the name of Yahushua to get you to be sidetracked from the inspired word and the inspired words of the apostles, the prophets, and the disciples. Nothing new under the sun. 
comments, questions out there or in here? Whatever you want. All right, first question online. Matthew, don't you find 66 books a bit suspicious? Oh, I know, right? It's just death. Because if you add another six, it would be 666. No, I don't, I don't find that suspicious, no. But um, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to know the thoughts on why I, maybe we should be suspicious. All right, next question. So is there a gap theory according to the 66? A gap theory? I don't understand the question. Really, gap theory. Pass the microphone in-house here. We may have an answer to that. Well, if it is what I'm thinking it is, there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-3. In the beginning, Yah created the heaven and the earth, and the earth, in some people's minds, became formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and the spirit of Yah moved upon the face of the waters. And he said, let there be light. And so many people think that there is a time between when he made everything good, when okay. things went bad, and then he started recreating. I think yes, that's yeah, the I'm aware theory. of that, but that would be whether that's it. That would be in the 66, the 74, the 75, that's the 73, the 80, the or the 81. Right. So it's, it would even be down there in Qumran too, because they've got some uh, books from uh, you know. The right. So that's my understanding the of the okay. gap theory. Okay. Yeah. That's another. That would be a whole new teaching, right? Different teaching on gap theory. Okay. I just I was wondering. I thought I was. Is there a gap? I was wondering if we, that was it. Anyway, yes, another question. Oh, okay. Yeah, we can, we can, we just for fun, read, read us a couple of off-the-wall ones. Okay, here's a question. Is there an updated recommended book list available from Tour to the Tribe? Here's another question. Which part of Esther is inspired? Okay, here's another question. Would you ask Matthew to comment on Daniel's advice to Nebuchadnezzar when the dream that foretold of him being driven from men until he recognized Yahuwah's sovereignty? Okay, so yes, that's a. I like that. It's a great one. Repeat it. Before I go off half cocked. So. Again, I have to be so careful because if I go off half-cocked without making a clear distinction, people will be like, oh, Matthew. I believe that the Bible is literal. 
but I also understand in the Hebrew understanding of things you have pardes, which means an orchard. We're to eat of Yahweh's orchard. Pardes, Peshat, there's the plain literal sense of the text. There's the remez, the hint, the drash, and the allegory. Let's look at what this um, person online posed, the question, not in the literal, you can read it for yourself, but allegorically, it's actually quite interesting. I believe seven, when we look at the Bible, is perfection and completeness. How many times do we see seven and seven and seven? Seven is when there is the full connection with Yahuwah, full spiritual awakening. But the base man, the base man at our earthly carnal nature, when we are, Romans tells us, when we are en at enmity with Yahweh, it's because we're in our base carnal nature. And I, I, I actually, I think I may make this into a teaching. This could be good. But when Jacob, of course, the, 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 the ladder that Jacob saw in his vision, and the angels are ascending and descending, it's between the ladder was touching the earth, and then the upper ladder was touching the heavens, the base one level then you have your seven rungs to full, full experience of the heavenlies. So what you have in this particular allegory, I believe, is overcoming your beast, carnal, natural man. And for him to do that, he had to cast, be cast out, and he had to ascend until he could recognize Yahweh, which of course is the seven, full completeness. And once he reached seven, he proceeded from the natural man all the way through the rungs or the ladder and was able to connect and repent and recognize Yahweh as creator, as sovereign. And then he was brought back into the house, which is my life, which is your life. I was a base natural man. And then I connected with Yahweh. I went through all of my natural man. And I have to overcome. If I'm a base natural man, I've got to overcome. I've got to climb through the rungs. One, two, three, four, five. I have got to overcome my five natural senses. And then I connect with Yahweh. So I'm a base man, overcome my five natural senses. And then I ascend and I hit and connect with Yahweh. I think allegorically you see that all throughout the Bible. That was a bit loaded and a bit off the wall, but anyway. Do we have any other questions in house? Anybody? <laughs> oh yes, yeah, so give give uh, yeah microphone. Yep, yeah, super duper. What was the sixth step? You said the five senses and then heavens. Isn't there a sixth? Well, well, uh, we're 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 in the we're in the base the base man the natural man how we're born we're born earth element man number one and then we ascend. So we've got to go through overcoming the five. So you have the five, one, seven, right? Five in the midst, the five rungs or the five natural senses. But then my math has always been appalling, so. <laughs> Could you relate where they get this praying for the dead? There's a verse in the New Testament. Could you explain that? Give me the verse, read it. What is it? Other question while he's finding that scripture. I was talking about in 2 Maccabees 12.45 where it's written, Wherefore he made the propitiation for them that had died that they might be released from their sin. Praying for the dead, that was the basis. But you had something in the, in the New Testament? Yeah. 
And I, I've always thought that they used that. I know that Mormons use it. Oh, okay. Can't find it. Can't find it. All right. We'll maybe put that up on the comment section, add a comment, or put it up on Facebook so we can get an answer to that. If we can find it, which I'm sure we can. But anyway, what a blessing. So, again, make sure you tune in next week for part three of Liars, Lunatics, and Demons. And remember, subscribe to the channel, give us some thumbs up, and I'm counting on the six of you to give us some thumbs down out there. Thank you very much for hate watching. I mean, you must be enthralled because you're still here. Shalom. Catch you next week. <laughs>